that got real clear. All right, we apologize for the delay. Um, as you know, if you've been watching the keynote, um, it went a tiny, tiny bit long. Um, 45 minutes is a brand new record. Um, they have had previous years where they've gone 38, 39 minutes. Um, I don't know if that's a challenge that Werner sets for himself to see how far he can overrun, um, but lots of great stuff. Um, we, as far as we know, the schedule is still proceeding as uh, planned. Um, despite all of us having a fantastic accessibility to technology, there has been no official update. Um, whether through the mobile app or on Twitter from AWS. Uh, but we did see that some other sessions are starting um, around this time as well, so we pushed it back a couple minutes. Um, but this should still at least allow you to guys uh, to continue uh, on throughout uh, your day as planned. Um, we have asked the people out front to allow people to continue to come in, um, so there may be a little bit of uh, um, traffic coming in as, as we're talking about. Just help them find a seat if you can uh, so that we can keep going and make sure that everyone's day continues. Sound good? Yeah, right on. Right. Okay. So let's get this rolling. Uh, can we get the speaker clock set, please? Sounds very game showy. Can I get 60 minutes on the clock, please? Um, right on. So uh, my name is Mark Nanakoven. Uh, I work for Trend Micro. Um, this is Johan. He is the CISO from Vonage. Uh, we're going to go a little back and forth uh, today. We're going to give you the story. Um, we're going to have Johan share his story. And I'm going to uh, give you some highlights of how you can apply um, the learnings, the teachings that Johan's going to share with us generically um, within the AWS cloud. You probably noticed in the session um, trailer that this is, in fact, a sponsored session by Trend Micro. Do not worry, this is not a sales pitch. We are not going to hit you over the head uh, with anything. Um, if you want to talk to Trend Micro, we've got a lounge here on the third floor in the MGM. We have extra large power bars there if you need to recharge, lots of power plugs. We are also strategically positioned right next to the coffee. Um, very, very good. Lots of team members up there that are happy to talk to you about what we do with deep security around ECS and EC2 security. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We want to make sure that you guys have a good set of practical um, takeaways here. You can learn from the experience that Johan has had leading the charge at Vonage, um, the story, um, the challenges, the successes, um, hopefully not too many of the failures. Um, but, you know, it's a pragmatic view, and I think that's really, really important, is to have a very honest and open view of the challenges um, of migration and of expansion and of all these different things. Because as much as it's easy to look on a PowerPoint and go like, oh yeah, we can do that, um, that's the easiest part, is drawing it out on the PowerPoint. There's cultural, there are um, technological impacts, and we're going to see how that goes. And so we've broken up the talk um, really into, into three main areas, but we're going to start with getting you oriented to understand a little bit about Vonage's business, about the challenges that they face, about the challenges that Johan faces uh, being the CISO there. Um, then we're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about the cultural impact, and I know that's kind of a weird thing to talk about in a technology conference, but it is absolutely critical because you see these tools that we have available in the AWS cloud, and you can do exactly what you're doing today in your data center in the AWS cloud. But if you only do that, if you stop there, you're selling yourself short, right? It's like taking the sports car to go get milk at the, at the corner store. It's just absolutely, uh, ridiculously overkill, and you're leaving a lot of performance there. You want to take that sports car and you want to go to the racetrack. You want to let it loose. Same thing uh, with technology, with the AWS cloud, but culture's a huge part of that. There's a lot of people factors here, and I know that's challenging. I like dealing with technology because you normally can get an answer. It'll work or it won't work. When it comes to people, it's all gray, right? Um, but we're going to dive into that. We're going to hear uh, some of Johan's experiences. We're going to uh, see some of the tools that AWS has made available to help you with that cultural uh, transition. Then we're going to talk about the challenges of running in a hybrid environment. 
Um, nobody started a business today. Did anybody start a business today? Right? So nobody did. You all have existing assets somewhere. You have existing IT that's doing its job, that's serving your customers, that's meeting your business needs. Regardless of that, when you move into the AWS cloud, you need some transition plan, right? No sane executive is going to take a working system and toss it out the door because there's a shiny new piece of technology. I did caveat that with sane executive, so I know people have stories. Um, so there is a hybrid reality, and you need to account for that. It's not a bad thing. You just need to plan for it, strategize for it, and implement against that so that you're making logical choices as you move forward. And then the last pillar, the last thing we want to dive into is the challenges when you've got this all set up and you're feeling comfy, you're feeling good, and then the business starts to boom. You start to expand, you're growing, you're acquiring, all that kind of thing. And I think that's really fascinating. And Johan can provide some absolutely critical insights for you guys. So I'm going to hand the clicker over to him and uh, take it away, Johan. All right. Thank you. So Vonage, uh, I'm not going to sell Vonage either. I'm going to give a little background for the ones who don't know Vonage. But uh, I think a lot of you know Vonage is a residential or consumer-based, as a consumer-based communication provider, uh, we are a unified communications as a service. So basically, we provide communications in the cloud. And that's one of the reasons I'm talking here. Uh, we are a, a, an M&A style firm. We have done a lot of acquisitions. Vaughn uh, so is also uh, lately, well lately, we have, uh, we have, now we have a huge focus in, in, in B2B or business. And we're growing with double digits percentage every year doing this thing, and it, which creates a whole new set of challenges for us. And uh, also the latest acquisition, this is important because uh, it's Nexmo, but Nexmo provides a whole new technology platform on top of our, our communication platform. And that's basically, we create a whole bunch of APIs to enhance the UCAS platform and, and applications for it too, which puts us in a very unique spot that we can provide both technologies and, and give some very high-tech solutions uh, behind just simple communication. We are very strong in the United States. Uh, we are also very strong in Europe at this point, and, but we rapidly expanding uh, through, throughout the world with points pretty much everywhere. And uh, it's been talked about rolling out in 20-some countries in, in a very short amount of time. And I go like, oh my goodness, that's a lot of security I need to think about into doing that, right? And, and because we go into B&B type of uh, businesses and, and the large enterprises, the security becomes, it becomes very, very important. And the board has recognized so. Uh, I am the CISO of Varnish, but I'm new. I've been at Varnish only for nine months or something like that, is it? So it's pretty recent. But I'm an old dog as a CISO. I've been CISOing since CISO wasn't even thought of. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's very interesting to come into a company like Vonage. That's, that's a it's huge enterprise, very much into high-tech development. And, um, and they never had a CIOs before. The security was on a, like an afterthought. So, the, so that's what I'm going to talk about. It's the lessons learned. Um, some failures in there. And uh, there are some great experiences with this thing that was going on. So let's look at our... Um, how, our, how we built it. So like Mark was mentioning here, there's no startups in here. So of course we have a, a huge footprint of data centers on a global scale. I think it is somewhere in between the next and bonus, we have over 14, 15 data centers spread out throughout the world. And they're not AWS. And I, cloud is just 
can be disputed what cloud is, but they're accessible through internet, which makes it kind of cloudish. But uh, we also have a very large presence in, in AWS. We have running some 6,000 instances or something like that. Uh, the other thing when you start in, as, as I mentioned, uh, security was an afterthought. So you had really started to think about these things, like how do I build security into an, in a large enterprise organization? Not only is it a US-based organization, it's international. So you can imagine if I go out to the London office, that is, that is a completely different culture than what the US office is going to have. So you really need to start to look at that. And you cannot force security inside an organization. You, you have to come up with a way to build it with the organization, not forcing it. And that seems to be kind of the CISO's first mistake, is the CISO basically, they know the cookie cutter thing, and they keep on doing it. And well, it works, but nobody as soon as he leaves or turns the back, they're trying to bypass it. And that's why you kind of see my password is such such on the screen on your computer or something like that. Um, like I mentioned before, uh, the board and the executive team uh, looks at security very, very seriously. And we, we do care about our customers. That's what security really means. We don't want to, we don't want to you know, lose your social security numbers or steal your identity or have it happen to you, so to say. And, and also, I do report to, directly to the CEO, and I have a standing report to the board. Uh, you may think that's great, but it's not so comfortable to report to the board, but that's the way it goes. Uh, but it, what it does, reporting directly to the CEO, I know a lot of CISOs report to the CIO or a CTO or something like that. And, and in my frame of mind, that's, that's, that's hard because that's a conflict of interest. And, and a lot of people don't realize that, but security cannot be dependent on another department. Now, let's look at how our teams are built throughout the organization and stuff. Uh, we have a lot of teams and a lot of very, very, very smart people. And, and it's kind of a funny thing when I started looking at security, you start in the beginning of security, and go like, well, you know, it doesn't look so good over here. And then they started thinking so about the teams, but boy, was, was I mistaken. I mean, we have some of the smartest cloud development teams out there deploying some very awesome technologies and stuff like that. But just being there talking to them and look what they do in their own way and stuff like that, it gives, it gives me great insight and understanding. And that's a unique thing with the CISO position, that you not just expose the technology, you expose to every department inside a corporation, not just security. And that gives you a very holistic understanding of what's going on. I mean, think a CFO knows the financial side and his CTO knows the development technical side, and CIO knows the operational side, but a CISO gets visibility across the whole organization. And it didn't take very long till I realized, like, wow, you know, uh, we want to do DevOps. And um, if we look at DevOps, a CIO also goes, oh, great, that's the worst thing that can happen to me. But that's the traditional CISO. I didn't realize that I am not a developer. I am a typical CISO, an infrastructure kind of guy, and, and know my pieces and parts. And um, you know, I, I realized very quickly that you know, historically, developers and uh, security, they rubbing elbows a lot. And, and, and it's not because it's not because of what they do, but it's just that's because security doesn't care about learning about development. And developers doesn't care about learning about security. That's really what it is. So, so I'm seeing this 
as the world is moving into the cloud and be more and more development streams and everything like that, is that uh, the new generation CISO has to be just as much as a developer as he is a, an infrastructure guy. And boy, have I learned a lot about development lately. I mean, when I started this thing, I had no idea what even a container was. And now I know where a container is, and uh, I know about Kubernetes and Dockers and Jenkins and all these things. But, you know, it's, it's christening by fire. So learning about DevOps and also looking at what we had inside the organization, uh, I realized very quickly that uh, we embraced every technology around there. And I, I wouldn't call it DevOps. I kind of I call it chaos ops because it's a little bit of everything, and that doesn't really work either. So it's a little give and take on this thing. So starting out, so how can I make DevOps to become DevSecOps? So I thought to that for a while, I said, well, you know what? I'm gonna create a new position. I'm gonna call this a security liaison engineer. That's probably the first ever heard of. Nobody have done this before. So people sort of, what are you thinking, Johan? Well, first of all, Johan, I am not a developer. I need to learn from somebody this. The, the, the liaison engineer is actually a very good develop, developer with exceptional communication skills and also have a security background. As you guys can imagine how hard it is to find this guy to begin with. It took me like, it took me like four months or four or five months to find this guy, but I did find this guy. So what does this guy really do? Well, he, if you think about it, the biggest risk of security, it's people. And the best thing to fight with people is using people. So I'm banking on this guy to educate all the teams and, and as communicate security. Think of it as a football team. Traditional security is like the referee of the football team that tells the team where to go and what to do and what it can't do anything else. And, you know, yeah, it works, but nobody really likes to have a referee around. But this is like you work from within a team and work in a collaborative type of way and, work, and, and actually making the team wanting to embrace security at the same time. Which gives me great visibility and, and you know, it gives a great flow understanding. It also enhances the security. And then with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Mark. Sure. Thank you, Johan. So I really find it interesting listening to Johan's story because I heard a lot of things that I don't normally hear from CISOs. Right? So he's talking about communication in a good way. Don't worry. That's uh, okay. You, you hear <laughs> about communication, right? He, he little about discovering what the development teams are doing. Um, interestingly enough, also, uh, you know, set up for success in that reporting right to the CEO, not to the CIO, right? Because that's an automatic headbutt as soon as you're working for your CIO. That's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm sure if I did a show of hands, probably every CISO in here reports to a CIO. Um, unfortunately, that's an organizational challenge, right? And it's part of the culture. But I think it's really important when you see this security liaison engineer, it's a people solution to a people problem, right? As opposed to trying to put another system in place or another set of technologies in place, you've got a trusted engineer who sits on both sides of the fence and is trying to break down that barrier and provide that constant communication. That's really challenging to do, but it's impressive um, that you've been able to pull it off and more people should be striving for it. And this is part of the reason we wanted to share this story of showing this angle. Now, when you look at this in more of a generic uh, uh, aspect, so we've heard how Johan is doing this at Vonage. I'm gonna give you a little more of the, how you can try to do this within your organization. Well, you know that this entire process needs to be focused on the business. If you come in there and tell them security is now gonna be leading the charge and you're gonna follow what I do, 
you are not going to last very long. That is not a successful conversation. We've all been the people, you know, the team of no for way, way too long. It does not work. Um, you can look at any major media outlet in any given month and you will see evidence that we do not do well with that approach, um, right? Company after company is getting breached at record levels. So we need to focus on the business. That's a great example where that security liaison engineer is working directly with the development teams um, and they're pushing things forward. But you need to know how business works. So in the AWS cloud, everyone has seen this model, everyone knows this model, I don't have to go through the steps of this model, right? I should hear 100% yes right now. No? Okay. Yes, thank you. Thank you very, very much. A beer for the front row. Um, so this is the shared responsibility model. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is how AWS operates for operations and security. Essentially, uh, if you're on-premises on the far uh, left, you're responsible for everything. Right? You have different teams maybe doing it, but you need to manage the security and operations of everything. As you move further to the right to more abstract or SaaS level services, you are delegating more and more of the day-to-day -day responsibilities to AWS. So if you're using something like Lambda as a great example, Lambda, your code is data. The app that runs it, which is actually a container, you never see it, you never worry about it. AWS does. There's OS underneath that. Don't care, not my responsibility. Same with the virtualization layer, with the infrastructure, the physical, all that kind of stuff. That's the deal you're striking by using a cloud service. That can be to your advantage, especially from a security perspective. You have less things to focus on, right? We're not getting more and more budget. We're not getting unlimited resources. It's almost impossible to find the right talent at the right time. Leveraging this model to your advantage is one way to get ahead, right? And you heard it in the keynote this morning with uh, Werner talking about uh, resilient and 21st century architectures moving up the stack to more and more managed um, services. This is one of the key drivers as to why. So this is what we're operating with under, uh, in the AWS cloud under the shared responsibility model. Under all clouds work like this. Your organization works like this. It's just the sharing is all internally, right? There are some documents that I wanted to draw your attention to, and that is probably the most boring thing I've said this week. I apologize. Um, but they are critical documents. These are white papers from AWS based on uh, AWS's learnings. Now, we've made it easy for you guys to get the links, and the slides will be up in the AWS SlideShare, and this is being recorded and be on the YouTube. But all the links today are bit.ly links, so 2017-SID210, that's this session, dash 01, 02, 03, 04, blah, 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 all the way through. You can get all the, the documents we reference, all the sites we reference. This particular paper is the cloud adoption framework. It is written from AWS's perspective of how to migrate off on-premise infrastructure into the AWS cloud. It's divided into six areas. Interestingly enough, the first three are all people and process-based. Talks about business, talks about um, the people themselves and your governance processes. Okay, and it starts to explain how you can bridge your existing ones into a more cloud-native um, AWS compatible way to take advantage of the speed that you can get from those technologies, right? So very important paper, and then the other three are more technology oriented, so around uh, platforms, scalability, um, and operations, right? Because you're shifting uh, for a while, and especially uh, during that migration, you're gonna be dealing with a hybrid environment, which we're gonna dive into um, in quite a bit of detail in a few minutes. Second paper I wanted to draw your attention to um, is a heck of a title, um, but essentially it's on uh, getting to that DevOps uh, enablement, getting to a CI CD pipeline within AWS. And again, the impacts around that. It's not just, okay, click here, click here, and you're done. Um, it talks about how you are adjusting your um, governance process. It references a lot around ITIL 
and how you can take the same core principles of ITIL and move them into a more cloud-native way. So if you, uh, you know, I'm assuming most of us operate under some level of ITIL umbrella, um, you know, we all have a change advisory board. It talks about how to migrate the same principles of a change advisory board into systems that enable that for you. So integrating that into a build pipeline to get the same goal, to meet your same goal, but do it in an automated way so you can do it faster and you can do it more often every day. So another great paper. And the last one I wanted to talk about um, was the cloud uh, transformation maturity model, um, which is super, super boring as a title, um, but it's a metric in which you can uh, gauge yourself as you progress, uh, go through this process as you're making progress to see where are you on the four levels of maturity for cloud adoption. And they have metrics and goals that you can evaluate yourself against. Um, and that's always good. When you're looking, talking about a business-driven process, having metrics and KPIs is absolutely critical. You don't have to come up with your own. They're in this paper. Okay, so very, very good paper to have, um, very uh, solid set. Um, there are more uh, papers that are available from AWS, but these are the three you want to start with um, when you're talking about that level of transformation. After these three are done, then you get into what Werner was talking about this morning around the well-architected framework, right, which is expanded from a paper to entire process and massive uh, construct. Um, but it is uh, talking about architectures. It is talking about um, the five pillars of uh, op cost optimization, performance optimization, all that kind of stuff. You need these uh, um, pieces in place first to help address the culture to get ready to actually take advantage of the architected framework. So it's absolutely critical. And I know that can be really challenging for us as technology-focused people, but the people uh, in your organization, in your teams, this is a journey that you need to help them through. Right? Adopting AWS cloud technologies can make a radical shift in how they do their day-to-day. -day. It opens up a huge amount of possibilities, but if you're not preparing them for it, um, you're not going to get all of the benefit, and you're going to have a lot more challenge than you necessarily need to be. With that, I'll hand it back over to Johan. Hybrid challenges. This is an interesting uh, thing that I encountered as, as experience. Like I mentioned before, um, we have a lot of data centers with our own cloud. Uh, we have also a huge presence in AWS. And my previous position were for a cloud service provider, so I'm well, well aware how the cloud works. And I have my own opinions, and, and, I, and I learned from experiences from a previous provider what I think is right and not right. And I want, I want to say I'm a huge fan of AWS first. I mean, but AWS may not like everything I had to say here, but uh, it's, it's okay. I think it's okay. Um, I like a cloud to build a cloud that is, I call it a floating cloud. And what that means is that um, I don't want to be tied down to application in one-to-one -one technology. And think of this, uh, uh, one benefit of floating cloud, okay, let's start over again. The floating cloud is, is a cloud that, uh, that can flood in my data center, it can flood in AWS, in Azure, you pick what you want to do. And you don't need to do anything, you can just float it over, you're not depending on certain development apps or anything like that. Now, that's very hard to do because AWS, I mean, developers love AWS because the application stacks and tools in there, they're awesome. And I like to see that as like the bait and the hook. They have the bait on it and then they hook you. And if you dive into all the AWS tools, you have something that works really good for you, but it only works for you in AWS. Uh, and um, think of that too, since I have all these other data centers and I want this floating cloud, I can actually, traditionally when people migrate to the cloud, they migrate the application to the cloud and do everything else. And it, it can be a very, very, very painful uh, experience to do. 
But if you do the floating cloud uh, model, you can build that floating cloud in your data center, build up the cloud so you can float over into AWS, and, and it will work just as well in AWS. And then, if, then you can actually put redundant cloud in another cloud, just in case AWS goes down or something, you can, it floats. Uh, and it's, that's another huge benefit. The other big benefit is that you have leverage when you negotiate your contract next time it's up. You need to buy some more stuff and you need to renew your contract. Now you have leverage so you can get better price. I'm a big fan of getting better price of stuff. Um, so that's kind of what I do. And the other thing is also you want to kind of unify that tool change. I mean, for example, you look at, um, you know, pick something like DDoS protection or something like that. I love to have something that works in AWS, in my data and everything else. And right, but we had traditional, what we have in my company, we have 10 different solutions to do one thing. Actually, we have two solutions. Tim, right? <laughs> He's here, so I'll be talking about that. So we have two DDoS solutions. Why do I have two, two DDoS solutions? Think about it. It costs me a lot of money every month to do these things. And, and, and unification, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, I had to educate the people and train people on two different technologies that does the same thing. And that is actually one of the, the big pains or being an acquisition type of company. And you acquire somebody and you're also requiring the technologies to have and everything else. But you can't have 10 technologies. We're talking millions and millions of dollars to just renewal of technologies. And, uh, the training is not even a piece of that. And when the legacy technology goes down, I call it shelfware and just sits there and I pay, you know, renewed license for $250,000 every year and nobody's ever using it. That's really not a good thing. And that also goes in, in the DevOps model. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, on the flows in this too. So we at Varnish, we are adapting something, we call it Jenkins, which is an automation tool. And I mentioned previously that automation is key, how to do these things and, and work with it, and actually putting in security into Jenkins. It's not made that way. And the other vendors out there, they sell a commercial version of Jenkins too. I think it's called Bluebees or something like that. I don't, but they actually put security in, security in at the same time, and it allows me to transparently build in security into the DevOps model. So let's look at it time. So if you look at security, first thing is, is like we do how to do code reviews and security check a code. We use some legacy software, no names, I don't throw anybody on the bus. It doesn't work with this DevOps model, so we changed that. So we changed it into a more fluent solution that fits with the flow. Uh, and in DevOps, they call it gates. And the security has gates. This, the biggest gates in the whole flow is security in general. So I removed these things. So I started with a code review gate and automated all of that and, and also brought in the, the QA process into the DevOps at the same time. So they cannot blame everything on security. I blame half of it on quality assurance. So I feel only half as bad as I could be. But one of the biggest part of the, in this DevOps workflow is that uh, everything needs to be pen tested, and pen testing is, is very difficult to do, and it's also very tedious. And uh, and you can understand if we re we can release like 10, 50 pieces of code in a week. I mean that's a lot of release of code. I mean you can imagine if we got a pen test that much every week, that doesn't work. But then I come back to my theory about education and, and um, liaison type of um, security engineer educating these people so we deliver a lot higher quality code 
and be delivering it a lot faster at the same time. So here comes the time when I had to give a little bit. So instead of having the gate, I removed the gate. We replicated code as a, in, 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 on the side, and, and the code continues going through the work stream. And, and, and we would only sample pen test codes, which means we don't be not pen testing everything, but we have higher quality code. And we, if we see a, a, a trend or something going wrong or, or right, uh, we will be able to catch that, and we can re-communicate that onto the teams. And uh, you know, building in that way, I removed the, I removed the pen test gate. But by removing something, security guy as I am, I needed uh, some type of compensating control. And traditionally, what happens? You you have, you have an environment. And in the environment, you develop some code. Well, then you stick some more code in the environment. And now we have two pieces of code in the environment. And of course, if one code is vulnerable, it makes the other code vulnerable too. And that's not a good thing. So I'm going to tell you about something. Uh, I, I, and some of you may know what it is, some of you may not. Uh, it's called micro-segmentation. And, and, and uh, instead of having two pieces of code that doesn't work, together or have one vulnerable and one non-vulnerable. Microsegmentation is something actually that isolates the applications in the containers, works with the workflow transparently from the beginning to the end, and is completely isolated from each other in the same environment. So I have a very high level of security across all of my environments at any given time. If some rogue code goes in there that doesn't belong in there, it will detect that this, this container doesn't belong in here, it doesn't work and we can reject it. And uh, so I, the developer doesn't have the full freedom to do something wrong, but, but I, have the, I have enough security to keep a very high level of security at the same time doing it. Mark, you're up. Perfect. All right, now Johan just covered something that I think is so important. I wanna pull up his slide again, just to go over a key point. Um, because what your uh, role as um, either a CISO or a CIO um, in here in this DevOps model is to make sure that your development wheel is moving as fast as you possibly can make it. And the reason for that is from a business perspective, you're delivering value to your customers, you're solving your problem faster, right? You're being more responsive. From a security perspective, you're reducing your overall risk because now when you're pushing changes out to production, they're much, much smaller. So if you're pushing 30 lines of new code, if there's a problem, you've got 30 lines to go check, right? As opposed to traditional one where you get a much bigger chunk of code and deploy it out and you've got 3,000 or 30,000 or 300,000 lines of code. If you move faster in here, you end up being more secure. But as Johan pointed out, the challenge is if this wheel is moving faster, our traditional processes can't keep up. So his compromise, which is a quite reasonable compromise, is that every X number of deployments, and that depends on what the speed is going for you, is that they will pull out a sample to run through a full, more stringent security review. Right, so they're moving as fast as they can and they have a bunch of security controls built into that DevOps cycle on all runs. Every X number of runs, they go through a far more in-depth code analysis, um, vulnerability scan and configuration verification process that takes longer. But while that's going, the code is still out in production, but this way they come out with a result of whether something went wrong or not within this last sprint cycle, right? So it's very similar, you can think, and this is probably a, a somewhat negative uh, 
analogy in this context, think of the voting system. Just ignore the political ramifications, but the process of counting votes. You cannot count 300 million some votes twice, right? What they do is they take a certain statistical sample and verify the validity of those votes. Okay, this is a similar process. It's a reasonable auditing, auditing compromise to get the level of assurance that's required to meet the security needs, but while still combining the ability to move very, very fast, which is why you pushed for this DevOps model in the first place. Okay, and I think that's an absolutely critical takeaway. I think that's absolutely important to understand because if you went and said, I know you like deploying code 10 times a day, but I'm not gonna let you do that, as a CISO, as a security team, that's not gonna fly, you're dead in the water. Okay, now in order to enable that, you need to make some adjustments in your tooling. You need to realize that cloud native tools, that tools will fit into a CI CD pipeline that will enable that DevOps culture, really follow three major tenets. You need to be able to get data in and out of them easily, right? So standardized data formats in and out. Not hard to do in the cloud, but a lot of traditional tools don't keep up with this. You need them to be environment aware, but not locked into the environment that they're running in. So this comes back to Johan's tenant of he wants the flexibility for his basic services to be able to migrate wherever they make the most sense for him, whether that's on-premise, whether that's in the AWS cloud or an alternative, right? So you need tools that are aware of those environments, but not restricted to them. You don't need a security tool, or you can't use a security tool that only works in this environment. You need it to be able to move with you. And then you need these tools to be programmable. You need them to be accessible via code. You need to be able to integrate them into other systems. You are not the only kid in the playground. You need to play nice with others, right? And the way you do that is being programmable because now you can take uh, adjustments and react to the environment. You can also send things upstream for other people to react to. Absolutely critical. Three ways to evaluate a tool, data in and out. It needs to be environment aware but not locked and you need to be able to program it so you can integrate it with the rest of your environment to make a complete story. Now there's a few of those tools available in the AWS cloud today and I'll run you through those right now. Um, EC2 Systems Manager got a big boost this week. Okay, this is really, uh, it's billed as one service. It's actually a collection of a bunch of features and services from other places, but it's the concept of you have an EC2 fleet, you need to manage them in some way. There are certain things that you need to be doing on these. You need to be um, maintaining the compliance of the software in there. Uh, you need to be um, running automated commands on here, so through EC2 run command. Um, you need to be have visibility into the content. You need to be applying security roles. This is a default service. It's available to everybody. It's generally available now. Um, if you have more than one, EC2 instance, I'm going to assume pretty much everyone has more than one EC2 instance, this is a service you should be leveraging because it lets you unify your way of managing those, right? We need to get away from managing individual uh, instances, abstract that up to groups of them. System manager is a way you do that. Another really handy way to uh, manage the um, deployment of your EC2 instances and what's running on them is OpsWorks. Now, OpsWorks used to be essentially a uh, rebranded chef. Um, but now it's uh, recently, about a month ago, it also has full puppet support. Um, and this is a way to orchestrate the software that's running on your EC2 instances. So if you have use Chef or um, Puppet today, you can migrate it into OpsWorks. They have some really nice visualizations that are not available in those other tools. But again, a way to deploy software, to deploy configurations in a scriptable, programmable way. So you can trigger off in your um, build chain, you can fire off to OpsWorks to ask it to make specific configurations or to run specific security scans. These types of activities are fully enabled through this tool, okay? Great tool, generally available, everyone has access to it. 
But then more importantly, um, for the uh, overall DevOps cultural enablement for um, managing code, for getting code out into production, is a collection of services that you heard Werner refer to this morning as CodeStar. And it's CodeStar because it's super nerdy as far as star as the um, asterisk to sub in for any character. Because I love the AWS teams and I work with these guys closely, but they messed up on the names on some of these. So it doesn't make sense. When you hear how they work together, it totally makes sense, but the names don't line up. So I'm going to walk you through it. This is the overall uh, set of CodeStar services. They all start with code something, but it starts right from source code. You have source code. Um, you can take it into the AWS Code Commit, which is a managed code repository, again, which is also fully program uh, programmable. Or you could just leave, uh, have your code in a copy in Amazon S3. Don't do that. It's not normally a good idea. Um, or GitHub. Uh, now, most of us either on GitHub Enterprise on-prem or in the cloud or the public version, doesn't really matter. You have somewhere you're managing your code, managing collaboration around that code, and that's the start of this chain, right? That's the start of your CI-CD pipeline. Moving to the next one, which is the co uh, build stage. In this case, you'd be subbing in AWS code build. At least that one makes perfect sense. Code build, it builds your code. Um, it also, uh, you could sub in your own build server here if you needed to or had custom requirements, uh, but code build works great and it fits nicely. You'll see there's a bit of a blank here in the staging phase. There is currently no AWS service offered that helps you um, manage your testing. So you're going to need to provide your own here. This is where Jenkins can help. Another uh, number of other uh, commonly used open source tools are available in this uh, stage of the pipeline. And then you get into production. You need to take your code. So you've stored your code, you've managed your code, you've built it, you've staged it, you've tested it, it's ready to go, it needs to get out into production. Here you have way too many choices, uh, but pick one that works for you and stick with it. Um, you can go with uh, Code Deploy, which is part of the Code Star pipeline. Or you could use the classic Elastic Beanstalk, which is still uh, kicking around. Um, Opsworks has a stacks feature that helps you deploy out code. Um, or you could use CloudFormation, which tends to be the, the, um, the go-to. Um, you could also sub in uh, things like uh, Terraform, or you could go to Ansible, any number of tools. But this is the overall concept of this pipeline. There is another AWS service that manages this called Code Pipeline. I know, I warned you at the start that the naming didn't make any sense. But you have four stages, build uh, or source, build it, stage it, push it out to production, and you need something to manage that orchestration. That service that manages the orchestration is actually called code pipeline. The overall concept of this is also a pipeline. Not my names. I fully disavow all these names. But the concept makes sense. So you can map this to what Johan was talking about as far as the DevOps cycle, right? I commit my code, I build it, I stage it, I push it out to production. Every certain number of deployments, one of my uh, staging pushes is also going to kick off a deeper set of security automation. That's where I'm going to go in and do that extra scanning. That's where I'm going to do the configuration verification. Um, ideally, I have things like that running in production as well. But this is available with some basic AWS services today for everybody to be able to orchestrate that, right? which is great. You could also use your own tools for this. The concept is portable. So if you do want to make sure that you can take this and move it to other areas or do it on-prem, you can as well. There's a lot of great open source projects that back these processes. The important thing is you get that process in place and you make it go as fast as you possibly can. Okay, with that, I'll hand it back to Johan to talk about expansion. So speed, talked about uh, independence of uh, the cloud, and, and the other big challenge for me is the expansion. Uh, as I mentioned before again, uh, we are expanding 
very, very quick. In this, I call it the kind of like explosive growth. And when you look at expansion, one of the first things you start looking at is now getting my compliance side of it too. This is the most exciting thing is compliance, especially when I'm going to talk a little about something called GDPR later. It's, uh, it's uh, very interesting. But look at the compliance. And when I started at Vonage, uh, we were pretty much a, a standard consumer base. And of course, consumer base takes credit cards. So we have something called PCI compliance, which is the credit card, be able to take credit cards secure in that end. But when I started, it's like, wow, you know, we got the CISO over here now. Now, now we need some more stuff. And they, they're looking out to get uh, SOC compliance. Uh, we are, of course, we have a SOX compliance with a public company, so we have that too. Or a high trust. High, uh, that's, high trust is something interesting. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with what high trust it is, but uh, a lot of times you hear about HIPAA compliance, and um, you talk to a lot of vendors that, or vendors or whoever that, that tout HIPAA compliance, usually with, um, with uh, one, one A and two Ps. But you know this wrong because HIPAA has two A's and one P in it. But uh, believe it or not, 30% of people cannot spell HIPAA. Uh, but high trust is the closest to the certification HIPAA you can get. And so, of course, I get asked uh, because Vonage and Vonage sales is very, very keen on getting into the healthcare industry and, and doing it the right way in healthcare, actually protecting the patient records and everything. And the perception is like, you know, like I mentioned before, Vonage, security was a thought of when I started there. And this going from zero to hero in no time at all. High trust is not something you just go to a grocery store, pick off the shelf, and you're compliant. It's a massive effort to move through a corporation and get this thing to work. So there's a big push from the board, from the executive team, from especially from sales team and what have you. And I think it's actually quite exciting. I'd love to have it that way. And, and actually, since my mission and my drive from the board is secure the company, I can use this, uh, I call it the, the compliance club. I can punch people with it when they don't want to do something. And I can blame it on compliance. But you know, I, I Usually say, oh, you had to be secure and then compliant. I think compliant is great. You become secure because you use compliance. That's my tool to beat people up with. And the really interesting piece of that is, is um, with the GDPR. Uh, how many of you are familiar with GDPR here? I think a bulk of you. So it's started, it's starting at May 2018. And uh, the first thing I want to say about GDPR, it, it is uh, very close what the HIPAA looks like. So I started to think, like, oh, if you're going to high trust, I want to get two for one. So we started to go down that route. And uh, it, we are securing a lot of divisions. Um, uh, but with the GDPR and also go through the high, tr uh, the high trust type audits at the same time. Uh, the problem with high trust and also with GDPR is that uh, it's very descriptive, and I kind of wish it was a little bit of PCI, but it's prescriptive to tell you what to do, but they, thou shall do something, not how shall I do something. It makes it makes difficult, but we, uh, we get through this, and I did a big mistake with the GDPR first when I started it out. When I started, I asked, you know, hey, where are we? And, oh, we don't know. We haven't started yet. It's like, wow, you know, this, it's already April, and now, now I need to figure this stuff out. So I thought, well, you know, that's great. So I hired myself a, a, a compliance uh, expert and an uh, awesome lady. Uh, she's done miracle type of work for us. Uh, she's been in healthcare forever and ever and ever, hip on high trust. So she's be doing a dual audits, kind of a lot of divisions and getting this thing done. 
But the mistake I did is like, GDPR is not just compliance, it's also legal. And I kind of forgot about the legal team, and you know, boy, did I feel that in the, in the, at the end of it. But hey, you know, that's, that happens, and nobody done GDPR, so you know, you're kind of pioneering these, these things. And I ask other CISOs, where are you on GDPR? And I get a lot of this, oh, no, we're just waiting for it. We'll see what's going to happen. But do you know how much the fines are? I mean, you know, it's 4% of your gross sales. And it's like, wow, you have a multi-billion dollar company. 4% has some significant, significant impact in your business. And this is why my board is so concerned about GDPR. So we've really been forcing on or embracing the GDPR. And, and personally, I think GDPR is the future, what the world is going to look like. I mean, Europe is now doing the GDPR. And oh, I forgot to mention that GDPR is protect European citizens' identities. That's what the whole compliance is about. So if you want to do business between Europe or United States, you had to be GDPR compliant. That's what I get from, think I know that you know everything I do all the time. Uh, but either way, either way, what's important to know that GDPR has a huge fines attached to it, and it's self-assessed, which means you don't need to do anything. But the biggest advice I have on this thing, you go through the cycle, do it professionally, but get the third-party attestation to it when you're done. If you don't get that, I mean, that's like you kind of get free out of jail card and something happened to you. If you get that attestation, it shows you all the risks and gaps that you have. At least you're going to have uh, something to show for that you've done best efforts. And you've really done the best efforts because if you do self-assessed and you have something happen to you, you don't have much to stand on if you don't have that attestation going. And, and it's not required, but I, I, think it's gonna, I think it's really going to get there. Perfect. I love the term compliance club. I think it's a little funny that you got hit with the legal club. But yes, I got hit by the legal club. Good, good advice. Get legal involved very, very early, especially when it comes to something as complex as GDPR. Um, now, I'm a firm believer um, that compliance is just the output of a good security program. Right? If you're aiming for compliance and that's all, you're only aiming just to get that compliance, you're missing the game here. You need a strong security program and then you need compliance specific activities so that you meet those legal requirements. Right? But the way we're going to get this is by automating. Okay? Normally people hate compliance because they only start to get ready on Friday when the auditor shows up on Monday. Right? We've all been there. You're like, oh, yeah, oh, crap. He's showing up on Monday. Okay, let's get all the audience evidence together. Let's just hope he doesn't ask about that thing over there because we don't really have the proper evidence because we haven't been collecting it as we go. And that's really the key for compliance. Whether you're trying to shoot for PCI, whether you're going for high trust, whether you're going for GDPR, you need to have continuous demonstrable evidence that you can use in an audit uh, report. Now, uh, when it comes to auditing in the AWS cloud, it is a combined audit response between you and AWS because you're building on top of what they are, uh, have already built. So if you're undergoing PCI compliance, you need their PCI attestation to uh, build into yours because you're working on their infrastructure, right? They've made it easy to get that, and I'll we'll cover that in a second. Um, but Johan's earlier point about trying to make unified tooling, having these common processes and common tooling, is absolutely critical to making compliance actually work. Right? If you have to go to all of your teams and figure out how they each individually record information, compliance is going to be an overwhelming burden 
And the only compliance regime with a stick big enough is GDPR, right? So GDPR has the 4% of annual uh, gross turnover for a negligent finding. Um, I think more appropriate to almost everybody is that they have a 2% fine for failure to properly report a breach. And that includes failing to detect said breach, right? So the 4% is if you've been found that you did not do your best to secure data. The 2% is failing to tell people that you had an issue with the data, right? And you're gonna see people hit with that, I think, quite a lot. And the way you prove that you're doing good is making sure that you've automated the collection of evidence, you've got people working on all the same tooling, like Johan's been making a big effort there, you've talked to legal ahead of time so that you know what you should be collecting, and you've got professional help to help align that, um, so you're setting out the plays before you start playing the game, right? A Couple tools in AWS to help you do that. Um, AWS organizations, it's sort of an Uber service on top. Um, it helps you wrangle all the AWS accounts. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say if I ask you guys to put up your hands, who has more than one AWS account? Yeah, that's like 100%. Um, or organizations help you wrangle them back together. You keep separate accounts, but you can define policy across accounts. You can verify and enforce policy across accounts. So if you have standardized ways of applying roles, you can do that. You can also, I would suggest taking it a step further and having a standard setup for accounts. So leverage things like the new um, cross-regional VPC peering, just make sure that you're getting uh, the right access to back to centralized systems if you need it. Um, ensure that security has visibility with uh, roles that they can assume into those accounts. They can verify certain services are enabled to start collecting these evidence, uh, the evidence for compliance. Um, organizations is the place where you can start with that. Right? It's a fantastic tool. It was built directly in the response of the problem of the fact that everyone and their uncle fires up a new AWS account for every project they have. Right? And that's fine. That's a good security tool as far as isolation. But if you don't manage those accounts properly, it's a very big headache very, very quickly. And when it comes to compliance, you'll end up missing a ton of stuff because you don't know about certain accounts. Orgs is a way to fix that. Second uh, and absolutely critical piece when it comes to compliance in the AWS cloud is CloudTrail. We all have CloudTrail enabled on all of our accounts, right? If you don't, you can use your orgs to enforce that. CloudTrail gives you a record, um, digitally signed, cryptographically verified record of AWS API calls on a two to four minute time lag, okay? It's now one click install for all regions. So for each account, day one when that account opens, if you're manually doing it, check the box. It should be scripted, but easy as that. CloudTrail is then on, and it just keeps dumping all these records into S3 for you. It is the baseline information for a number of other services within the AWS cloud, as well as your compliance efforts. AWS Config runs off of this, Amazon Macy runs off of this data, Amazon GuardDuty uses this data, um, AWS Config Rules also leverages all this data. There's a number of others that dive into it. Um, this is what has happened when and by who. Sounds like compliance data, right? You have this enabled, it's constantly going. That brings us to our next one, AWS Config. This launched two years ago at AWS reInvent, or three years ago at reInvent, sorry. And what it does is it looks at the CloudTrail data and then provides you snapshots of what your environment looks like at any point in time. So there's this really nice visual look where if you sit it in front of an auditor and they will say, okay, on Tuesday at noon, what did your environment look like? Config automatically builds that out of CloudTrail data. So it will show you the state of your VPCs, the EC2 instances, the security groups at that point in time, as well as changes moving forward. 
If you have third-party systems or extra controls on top of your AWS assets, that's what config rules is for. Config rules is a simple Lambda system where you can have a, your own Lambda function fired when config finds something. So if you see a new EC2 instance, you can trigger AWS uh, config rules, which call a Lambda to verify that your monitoring tool or your security stack or whatever you want is installed on that EC2 instance. Then it puts the data back into config. So when your auditor shows up, they not only have the AWS data, but then all your third-party tool information is all in one place. So config rules lets you make config the single source of truth for compliance within the AWS cloud. And it's all automated. No humans needed after the initial setup. And that's really good. Because humans are good at a lot of things. Drudge work of constantly recording changes in an automated environment is not something humans are good at. Right? This is a tool that lets you set this up automatically. Additional tool I wanted to call out was a brand new Amazon Macy service. This started uh, in um, August at the New York Summit it launched. It is targeted at S3 data. Um, as well as CloudTrail analysis. So it provides some really cool visualization of your uh, CloudTrail um, calls, so what's happening in your AWS account. But it also analyzes the contents of your S3 bucket for key risk items. Almost all of these fall under compliance regimes. So there are default um, uh, already rules in place to look for personally identifiable information, to look for personal health information, Look for financial information. All that is pre-built in. Macy's a one-click enable pointed at a bucket, and then it analyzes the contents of the bucket and the behavior of the access to that bucket. So what will raise a flag and say, hey, I found personally identifiable info in here. Did you know it was there? Or worse yet, I found personally identifiable information and it's accessible to the world. You probably didn't want to do that. Well, Macy will automatically harvest all that stuff for you and push things upstream uh, so you get CloudTrail records of it. You have a, an ongoing continuous monitoring. Again, no humans involved, right, beyond turning it on. And all these things add up together to give you an automated evidence creation system, right? And that's the key to compliance. In order to be compliant, you need to be able to prove that you're implementing all of the uh, security practices you put in place. All the stuff Johan's been talking about, you need to be able to prove that. An auditor will not just come in and say, are you doing it? And you say, yeah, I am. And they're like, right on, you're done. Not the case. You need to be able to prove it. Setting up an automated way to collect that evidence ahead of time is how you get there. So I wanted to just sum this up really uh, quickly because I think it's important for you guys to um, you know, understand where you're at. Right? There's a really good opportunity here leveraging some of these tools to take security to the next level. We heard it uh, Tuesday Night Live. We heard it at Andy Jassy's keynote. We heard it this morning from Werner. Security automation is critical. Security modernization is absolutely key. Johan shared his story how he's enabled a fast DevOps cycle um, with that security sampling as a workflow. That's phenomenal. Trying to get his team's unified tooling, having that security liaison engineer for communication to tackle the human piece absolutely critical, right? If you take one thing away from this, as much as there's a lot of great info in this talk, if you take one thing away, I would say that's that security liaison engineer. That seems absolutely key and critical, right? So that unified uh, tooling, then compliance being built in from the start. Set up that automated evidence collection from day one, as opposed to Friday afternoon, oh crap, we've got to get all this info, they're coming on Monday. You've been building that stream of evidence nonstop without any people being involved. That's the way to succeed. 
We thank you very, very much. Please remember to fill in your eval. We're actually right back on time. Um, we'll be here for some questions, and then after we're going up to the third floor, and we've got a nice big Trend Micro Lounge there, we'll be taking questions up there. Happy to talk to you guys further in this, uh, around these topics. Thank you very much for coming.